0: From Montana to Alabama, West Virginia to Nebraska, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, woke revisionist history has infiltrated some of the nation's most cherished presidential homesteads. We get details from Brenda Hefera of the Heritage Foundation. August primary elections are underway, and Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story on results from Missouri, Arizona, Michigan, and Washington. In another example of legislative doublespeak, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act will do nothing to curb runaway inflation. Eric Baim learns why from Chris Edwards of the Cato Institute. And Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council zeroes in on all the taxes and spending contained within the Inflation Reduction Act. He talks about how it will impact the states on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Presidential homesteads are sites where new generations of Americans can learn about the lives and contributions of our founding fathers. But several of these sites now tell us little about their former occupants instead pushing a woke brand of critical race theory. Brenda Hefera is Assistant Director and Senior Policy Analyst at the Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. She is here with details. Brenda, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Brenda, we're going to talk about these three presidential homesteads, and let's start with the good, and that is your review of Mount Vernon, the homestead of our first president, George Washington. What sort of experience do visitors get when they go to Mount Vernon, and is it historically accurate?
1: Yes, Mount Vernon is doing quite a good job in recognizing and respecting George Washington's legacy, and they have also paid careful attention to maintaining historical standards. So when a visitor goes to Mount Vernon, they can take the very popular house, which includes a discussion about the contents of the mansion, George Washington's accomplishments, and the enslaved people who lived on the estate. Overall, the Mount Vernon Ladies' Association has incorporated the story of slavery into the story of Mount Vernon. They give a fact-driven and nuanced account of the institution of slavery, but they don't shy away from it. It's just part of our history and part of the history at Mount Vernon. And what's really exceptional at Mount Vernon is they have a museum and education center dedicated to the accomplishments of our first president.
0: Unfortunately, things go downhill after that and we're going to talk now about Monticello, which of course was Thomas Jefferson's homestead, and Montpelier, which is where uh, James Madison had his home and Brenda, I did have opportunity to be at both of those homesteads earlier this year and was really struck about how the whole approach to it, unlike the experience in Mount Vernon, was really one of more wokeness than historical accuracy. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: I would say Monticello is a bit more of a mixed bag than Mount Vernon. When you go through the popular house tour, which is at about 45 minutes long, they talk about the contents of the mansion, some of Jefferson's accomplishments, the enslaved people, and Thomas Jefferson's time in France, which is when they introduced the story of Sally Hemings, which they've chosen to present without qualification. And the exhibits at Monticello include primarily the exhibits in the cellars, which talk about the contents of the rooms and the purpose of the rooms and the enslaved families and individuals who lived there, a life of Sally Hemings exhibit, and the exhibits at the base of the mountain on the building of Monticello and Thomas Jefferson as an architect and scientist. But overall, visitors don't learn a great deal about Thomas Jefferson when they go there. There are no exhibits dedicated to his presidency, his vice presidency, his authorship of the Declaration and Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, and Studying those documents, even independent of Jefferson himself, is really incredibly important for understanding our character as Americans. And what is perhaps even more disturbing is that they put forth that Thomas Jefferson didn't mean all when he wrote, all men are created equal, which is just inaccurate. Men is a substitute for mankind.
0: And when it comes to Montpelier, this seemed to be particularly egregious. What sort of influences are at play here when you have a historical site like this? There was virtually no reference at all to the historical accomplishments, to the contributions of James Madison to our founding documents. What's at play here that is causing these historical sites, which should be a place for learning, to really be one of revisionist history and wokeness?
1: Unfortunately, at this point, there is no exhibit at Montpelier dedicated to James Madison himself. During the House tour, they do talk about some of James Madison's accomplishments, and they do in a short video at the Visitor Center, which also says that Madison labeled him a slave owner and that the Constitution was racist. So some of the players behind this narrative at James Madison's home, which is really a critical race theory narrative, include the Southern Poverty Law Center. The associates of the SPLC have been involved at Montpelier for quite some time. They helped develop a video in the basements of Montpelier, which talks about slavery's lasting legacy, and that video contends that there are probably more defeats. In pursuit of justice and fairness and equality in American history, then there are moments of triumph. The SPLC also was, two of its members were nominated to a board. One was chosen to serve on the board, another on an advisory council. All eight of the children's books that are featured in a children's exhibit for teaching kids about race and slavery were recommended by the SPLC. And the SPLC associates in the past also participated in a national summit on teaching slavery, which was the product of which was a rubric for how slavery should be taught not only at Montpelier, but at other historical sites. And in that rubric, they say that it is not enough to simply discuss the humanity and contributions of these slaves, that these institutions also need to unpack and tear interrogate white privilege and supremacy and systemic racism.
0: And I have to say that the lack of concern over history and over the man himself extends to the actual gravesite of James Madison, which uh, we were very disappointed we were there. Not only do you have to go uh, across an unimproved field, which is not handicapped accessible, but when you get there, The gravesite was overgrown with grass and weeds. The tombstone hasn't been cleaned in what looks like decades. Certainly not a fitting memorial to a former president of the United States and founding father. There's a lot more to talk about on this particular subject. The three presidential homesteads, Mount Vernon, Monticello, and Montpelier, subject of a very extensive report by Brenda Hefera. And Brenda, could you tell us a a bit about the Heritage Foundation and a website where folks could go so that they could read your report on these three homesteads?
1: They can go to heritage.org and search for the Simon Center. My report is up on our page. And Heritage's mission is to formulate and promote public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and a strong national defense. And again, you can find more about us at heritage.org.
0: Brenda Hefera, Assistant Director and Senior Policy Analyst in the Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Brenda, thank you for taking time to be with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It is primary election season in a number of states around the country, and Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth has kept an eye on all the election returns. Scott, good to have you here.
2: Thanks for having me back, Loman.
0: Well, we had five primaries this past week. We're going to touch on most of them here today. Let's start out in Missouri, a very hotly contested U.S. Senate race, some congressional races. Tell us what happened in the Show Me State.
2: Yeah, in the Show Me State, Eric Schmidt became the Republican nominee for the United States Senate seat. That's being vacated by Roy Blunt's retirement. Schmidt is the current attorney general, and he ran against Vicki Hartzler, Eric Greitens, Billy Long, Mark McCloskey, and a few others. Schmidt ended up running away with this one. He got 45 percent, and Hartzler finished in second with 22 percent. We really feel good about holding this seat in the general election. And so this time, uh, January 3rd, 2023, we should be seeing Eric Schmidt as a Republican senator from Missouri.
0: Also on the U.S. House of Representatives side, a very hotly contested primary as well.
2: This is a race that Club for Growth PAC made an endorsement, and Club for Growth Action engaged in significant independent expenditures on behalf of a candidate. Eric Burleson was a state senator, somebody that we endorsed last September, nearly a year ago. And throughout the campaign, we always felt like Burleson was a top-tier candidate in a top-tier race. This is one of those really, really conservative districts in Missouri and, of course, in the United States. And Burleson ended up Pulling away with it, he received uh, over 39,000 votes and 38 percent of the vote. Jay Wasson finished in second place with 22.5 percent, and a slew of other candidates rounded out the remainder of the vote totals. We're really excited about Eric Burleson. He's going to be a solid conservative fighter in the House of Representatives. We think he's going to join the Freedom Caucus, and of course, he's just going to be defending those economic values that the Club for Growth really needs in Washington.
0: Let's go west now to Arizona, which is viewed as prime pickup opportunity for Republicans in the U.S. Senate seat. First, the primary. What happened in Arizona?
2: This is sort of a fun one, right? This was a race that we had Blake Masters endorsed by the Club for Growth PAC and our independent expenditure arm, Club for Growth Action, also engaged here. He was up against a self-funder named Jim Lehman and also Mark Brunovich, the attorney general. Then you had a border security military guy named Michael McGuire, and then a former statewide official named Justin Olson that rounded out the candidates. Blake Masters, again, ran away with this race. It was a significant win. He won by over 11 percent and over 66,000 votes. So Blake Masters is going to be taking on Mark Kelly in the November election. I would expect this one to be one of the most expensive Senate races throughout the country. It is a prime pickup opportunity for Senate Republicans as we work to win back the Senate majority in 2022.
0: Going now to Michigan, some key races there as well.
2: Yeah, the big one here is that Peter Meyer, who voted for impeachment, lost to John Gibbs. John Gibbs is an African-American candidate. A lot of people are really excited about him. He's certainly got the MAGA... America first credentials he served in the Trump administration, and he ended up winning a, a very, very easy race against peter meyer i 'm sure he would say it was it wasn 't that easy, but he pulled away with it, and once again you 've got this situation where folks that voted for impeachment are going to be finding themselves in the unemployment ranks next january
0: and back out on the West coast, still a lot of undecided races in the state of washington
2: yeah, what we do know is that in both these races and the 3rd District of Washington State, and also the 4th District of Washington State, we're going to have a Democrat in the jungle runoff. So Washington State is a unique primary where everybody is lumped together on the same ballot, and the top two finishers advance to the general election. So in the 4th District, it looks like Dan Newhouse is going to be facing Doug White. This is significant because Lauren Culp actually received that Trump endorsement but finished in third place, and Newhouse is one of those uh, members that voted for impeachment and then basically kept his head down. He had a lot of significant experience in the state being the agricultural commissioner and now the member of Congress, so he does have some residual support, but he still only received roughly 27 percent of the vote. And then when you look over to the third district, we know that Maria Perez, the Democrat, received the most votes, and she'll definitely be in the general election. She had roughly 32 percent of the vote. And Jamie Herrera-Butler, who voted for impeachment, was in a really close race against Joe Kent, who received that Trump endorsement. Less than three percent separated them. And uh, Heidi St. John, who was a, a really good candidate, but just didn't quite have all the pieces of the puzzle, finished in fourth place.
0: And unfortunately, Scott, we have to end on a sad note this week. We had a member of Congress from Indiana who was tragically killed in a head-on crash this past week. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Indiana, Congresswoman Jackie Walorski, along with her communications director, Emma Thompson, and her district director, Zachary Pott, were tragically killed in a head-on car accident near South Bend, Indiana. Walorski was first elected to the House of Representatives in 2012 and also served in the state legislature. I knew her a little bit from my time being the executive director at the Republican Study Committee. And of course, this is one of those sad times that really does affect everybody that is in sort of this small community on Capitol Hill. Of course, Club for Growth extends our deep con- condolences to the congresswoman and also to her congressional office, losing a couple of their colleagues. What a sad, tragic day this week here in Washington for this congressional office and really the, the Hill community at a whole.
0: And our thoughts and prayers go out to her family and her staff as well. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, a few words about the club.
2: Sure thing. Well, today. We're talking mostly about campaigns, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Club for Growth PAC. This is a membership pack that is united in economic freedom and liberty, and our organization makes endorsements through our board of directors. If anybody wants to learn about all the candidates who are supporting this congressional cycle, check us out at
0: clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you again for being here. All right. Thank you. The so-called Inflation Reduction Act contains more of the tax and spend policies that have caused the current high inflation rate. For details, Eric Baim of Reason Magazine turns to Chris Edwards of the Cato Institute.
3: Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced last week that they've got a deal to pass something called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Hey, that, that sounds pretty good. I would like to see inflation reduced. The only problem is it's probably not going to actually do that. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Chris Edwards. He is an economist at the Cato Institute and a friend of the program. He's been here several times before. We welcome him back to talk about this bill and what it uh, proposes to do and what it likely actually does. Chris, thanks for taking some time with us today.
4: Thanks a lot, Eric.
3: Uh, Now, I know you're really more of a fiscal policy guy than a monetary policy guy, and inflation, uh, as Milton Friedman reminds us, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But, But Joe Manchin has made this argument for a while that we need to reduce the deficit to get inflation under control. And as somebody who would like to see the deficit cut, I'm receptive to that idea. So I guess, at least in broad strokes, I'm receptive to this idea of hey, let's put some money towards deficit reduction in order to tackle inflation. Does does that part of the bill make sense?
4: Sure, if, if that's what the bill actually did. There is general agreement amongst economists that the $6 trillion of extra deficit spending the government has done uh, since the start of COVID has fueled the inflationary fire. I mean, there is general agreement across centrists and conservatives and libertarians about that issue, but the, the bill in front of the Senate doesn't reduce the deficit, really. In the first four years, the uh, scoring shows that it would actually increase the deficit. It's only in the later years it would supposedly reduce the deficit. And in those later years, it would only reduce the deficit supposedly by around $50 billion a, a year. Well, that's only about one-fifth of 1% of GDP, so it's tiny. And also, you know, meanwhile, with or without this bill, deficits are going to be a trillion a year. So this thing, even under the best circumstances, would reduce the deficit $50 billion a year starting five years from now. But we'd still be running massive trillion dollar and more deficits from all the regular stuff the government does.
3: We should also mention that the the penn Wharton budget model looked at the bill, crunched the numbers on the bill, and they say that it also won't reduce inflation. It won't meaningfully impact inflation. But the one thing that the bill will do, and and Chris, you highlighted this in a piece that ran uh, today at the Washington Examiner about Manchin's mistake is the headline here. The one thing that we know for sure this proposal will do is it will increase taxes.
4: Absolutely right. So if you think about inflation as in excess of aggregate demand over aggregate supply, it doesn't really reduce the aggregate demand in terms of the government deficit spending, but it certainly will reduce the supply in the economy. I mean, there's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, a new minimum tax on big corporations. And then the uh, IRS is going to get a vastly increased funding and budget to increase enforcement, which is essentially going to be a giant tax on the time and energies of America's 30 million small businesses. So on the big corporation side, they would impose a new minimum tax based on the financial statement accounting of big corporations. This has never been done in the United States. In my view, it's very dangerous because it would tie together Washington and all its lobbying with financial statement accounting, which is supposed to be independent of government. So I think that's very dangerous. And then, as the Joint Tax Committee has already found, half of the burden of this new tax would be on manufacturing industries. So you don't reduce inflation by reducing investment incentives for businesses. So business investment would fall and that would, if anything, uh, exacerbate inflation.
3: I think one of the funny things about that point that you just made about the, how the taxes will fall most heavily on manufacturing is like the Senate just got done passing this bill that was a massive subsidy for manufacturers for like computer chip manufacturers specifically, and now we're going to uh, oh we're gonna raise taxes on manufacturers too to cancel that out.
4: A greatly underreported story in the mainstream media. Not you guys. Reason does a fabulous job pointing to corporate welfare, but in the mainstream media, I don't think they get the the dangerous stuff that's going on in Washington here. We've got $75 billion in new subsidies for semiconductor companies and others in this so-called Chips bill. We've got hundreds of billions of even more green incentives in this supposed inflation reduction act. Well, subsidies beget more subsidies. Every industry is getting tied to Washington's teeth, which is going to induce every other industry that hasn't got subsidies to start lining up and doing even more lobbying in Washington. I mean, and people who are worried about corruption in D.C., it's going to be worse than ever because the subsidies going out the door are going to be bigger than ever.
3: We're talking with Chris Edwards. He's an economist at the Cato Institute and the director of their Tax Policy Studies Center. Chris, just about a minute or so left here, but a point you make at the end of your piece that ran uh, in the Washington Examiner today is, I think, an important one that we should leave off on here. You say corporations are an easy target for political rhetoric, but uh, squeezing them for another $300 billion, as this bill does, will ultimately damage the economy. Uh, At the end of the day... It's not corporations that pay these taxes, right? It's, I mean, it's the workers, it's consumers, everybody else that, that pays for this.
4: That's right. Only three different groups of individuals in society ultimately pay the corporate tax. Either corporations reduce their wages for workers, and that's part of what the Joint Committee on Taxation assumes that about a quarter of this new burden would land on workers in the form of lower wages or consumers pay higher prices, or shareholders, which mean all of us with our retirement funds, get a lower return. So ultimately, individuals are going to be hit by this. That doesn't help anyone. And, of course, we're, all, we're already apparently in a recession. This damaging America's productive sector obviously is a really stupid thing to do that, that could push us, tilt us deeply into recession. It's a very flawed bill, and I'm really quite shocked that some of the uh, – The the groups who support reducing deficits and the like are naive enough to think that this will actually reduce deficits. It won't. More subsidies will be getting more subsidies, and this is just going to supercharge the excess deficits in Washington.
3: Yeah, it's not really going to reduce the deficit. It's probably not going to have any impact on inflation, but it will raise taxes. So maybe we shouldn't call it the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. There's probably a more apt name. I will leave it to you to figure out what that might be. Chris Edwards from the Cato Institute. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. And again, that is Chris Edwards. He is an economist at the Cato Institute and the director of their Center for Tax Policy Studies. Uh, You can check out his work at cato.org and check out his piece this week, Manchin's Mistake in the Washington Examiner for Reason Magazine. I'm Eric Baim. Check out our coverage of everything going on in Washington and around the country at Reason.com and catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal.
0: And so the Inflation Reduction Act will do nothing to curb inflation, but it does contain massive new federal government spending and a huge tax increase, as we learn from Jonathan Williams of the American Legislative Exchange Council on this American Radio Journal commentary. The stream of
5: absolutely ridiculous economic policy ideas coming out of the land of make-believe here in Washington, D.C. is seemingly endless today. The latest idea is that more spending and increased taxes will somehow magically fix the record levels of inflation that haven't been seen since the early 1980s. Expecting more government spending to fix inflation is like expecting your children to calm down after they fill up on candy. It just doesn't happen, folks. In addition, Increased taxes are the last thing that hardworking Americans need to face while facing the real threat of stagflation, which of course is the toxic combination of high inflation and negative economic growth for the first time since the Jimmy Carter era in the 1970s. Despite the claims of proponents of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act being considered right now, taxes will be raised on those making less than $400,000 per year, and substantially so in many cases, according to the Joint Committee on Taxation in Congress. The total tax increase is expected to be a whopping $313 billion with a B over the coming decade. One of the most economically destructive policy proposals included is the corporate minimum tax, which would take away normal business deductions and raise taxes on job creators in America. This especially targets U.S. manufacturers at a time when they can least afford it, placing America at a competitive disadvantage with China. Nearly every sensible economist, which is saying those not associated with the New York Times, like former Enron advisor Paul Krugman, understand that taxes on employers are counterproductive to economic growth and play a huge role in where businesses decide to locate headquarters and their operations. For years, for instance, at ALEC, our report, Rich States, Poor States, shows how businesses are increasingly mobile. And even longstanding, homegrown businesses are open to moving to jurisdictions that make better policy choices. The domestic corporate exodus has been playing out for years, In the U.S., businesses are leaving states with high taxes and general hostility to businesses in favor of states with low-tax and friendly business environments. In the past few years, Hewlett-Packard, Oracle, and most famously, Tesla, each moved their headquarters from high-tax California to low-tax Texas. Each company now enjoys the economic freedom of the Lone Star State, which ranked 11th best in economic outlook in this year's Rich States, Poor States. An even more intriguing corporate move occurred this year when Caterpillar, the heavy equipment manufacturer known for its yellow heavy equipment, announced that it would be moving its headquarters from Illinois to Texas. Caterpillar had called Illinois its home for the past 90 years, but its deep ties to the land of Lincoln were not enough to keep the company from hauling anchor and setting sail for Texas. While the move is unsurprising given Illinois' high taxes Punishing business climate and regulatory regimes, and its dismal rank of 45th in economic outlook for rich states, poor states. What is surprising is that Caterpillar, unlike some of the aforementioned corporations, took no tax breaks, credits, or other government handouts to move to Texas, further proving that economic competitiveness and not government handouts is what's driving business moves across states. So, how does this tie into the federal government's corporate minimum tax idea? Well, for one, if corporations are getting even further gutted at the federal level, they are forced to evaluate where to cut costs. And one of those costs they'll look at even harder is the amount paid in state level taxes. Businesses in states like California, Illinois, New Jersey, or New York may take a harder look at state level tax bill and decide to relocate potentially to states like Texas, Florida, Arizona, Utah, North Carolina, South Dakota, or Wyoming where the corporate tax rate is much lower or doesn't even have a corporate tax in the case of South Dakota and Wyoming. The corporate minimum tax will only speed up the corporate exodus from high-tax states to low-tax states. While we cheer the decisions of businesses like Caterpillar and the migration of Americans who had to vote with their feet and move to lower-tax locations, we worry about the dismal economic environment that these businesses and Americans leave behind. The bad policy ideas flowing from the land of make believe here in Washington, DC will only continue to pound these areas that have already been hit hard by the loss of jobs and economic vitality. For more information, visit Alec.org and rich states, org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening.
0: American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs minded radio stations all across the country, including WGFP AM in Webster, Massachusetts, KCHWFM in Chuela, Washington, along with WRXVFM in State College, Pennsylvania. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.